G'day everyone, and welcome to My Union Road in ABA. This is a podcast to chronicle the progress towards a new enterprise bargaining agreement at Monash University and is brought to you by members of the Monash branch of the NTEU. We're here to take the old agreement and hashtag change it. And unlike our namesake, my dad wrote a porno, do everything we can to avoid being fucked in the process. Those involved with the podcast would like to acknowledge that it is being recorded on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nations, on whose lands we live, teach, and work. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders, past and present, and to the continuation of the cultural, spiritual, and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hi everyone, I'm Adam Fernandez, your National Councillor of the Monash Branch. It has been 218 days since our enterprise agreement expired, and in that time, our beloved Vice-Chancellor has earned $716,566. That's roughly $3,287 a day, or $23,000 a week. I guess it's easy to make this much when you withhold the wages from your teaching staff and a pay rise from all your staff. That's it from me. Tune into our podcast next time for another episode of How to Get Away with Witch Theft. So this week we're talking all things industrial action. As folks may remember at an all-members meeting last year, we endorsed a motion about applying for a protected action ballot order, aka a PABO, if Monash didn't come forward with a pay offer by the end of January. Well, that has come and gone and they've not offered us anything, even as the VC's pay since the beginning of bargaining is now pushing close to a million dollars. So to help everyone get their heads around what comes next, we've invited Campbell Smith from the NTEU's National Industrial Legal Team along to talk to Kate and I and to you. So welcome, Campbell. Can you maybe start by introducing yourself and telling us what you do and what the National Industrial Legal Team is and does? Thanks a lot, Tony. Uh, My name's Campbell Smith. I'm a National Industrial Officer um, in our National Industrial and Legal Team. Um, I've been with the union for about five years. I'm a qualified um, practicing solicitor um, and I'm responsible for uh, oversight on our um, industrial action around the country. Thanks so much for coming and talking to us, Campbell. Um, We just thought we may as well start off at the very kind of basic level. What is industrial action and why would someone need to take industrial action? So um, under the Fair Work Act, uh, industrial action uh, has quite a technical definition of of what it is um, and and what it is not. And so it it encompasses a range of things um, that that people would be familiar with, like going out on strike. That's a sort of stoppage of work um, under under the Act or, or a refusal to perform any work if you attend for work. But it also encompasses things like adopting a practice in relation to the performance of your work, um, which creates a delay, limitation or restriction in the performance of the work. So things like um, one that's quite popular would be sending emails that have um, messages of support um, of the union's claims. um, And and that creates a limitation or restriction uh, or delay in the performing of work because you're taking time out of the work that you're normally performing in order to do things um, that are, you know, in support of of the union's claims. And the third way that an employee can take industrial action is to put a ban um, or restriction 
on uh, the type of work that would be performed or the way that work is performed. So you might say we're going to ban performing any work unless we're wearing campaign T-shirts or something like that. In relation to your second question about why someone would need to take it, I think it's a bit of a, a... it, it really is um, the only arrow in our quiver in terms of what we can do to push an employer to make concessions in, in their bargaining position because it's a bit of an adage, I think, amongst industrial officers that clever arguments at the table only get you so far. Um, if you can't persuade a management that doesn't want to give you something, then industrial action provides that extra pressure to get a claim across the line. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think we're all feeling on Ash at the moment. So very apt adage there. Um, And can you give us a bit of an idea, like you've sort of mentioned some of the forms of industrial action that people can take already or that are sort of possible under the the scope of the legislation. Can you maybe give us an idea of the kinds of industrial action that different kinds of employees can take? So the difference between like the sort of stuff that an academic member of staff might be able to do versus a professional member of staff. It's a really good question. So... I think we've really thought um, very carefully over a long period of time about the types of things um, that each sort of cohort of staff um, might be able to engage in industrial action um, in a way that would be protected. And I think a good example would be uh, going back to the example I used about making statements in support of the union's bargaining claims. So for an academic staff member, that might mean at a lecture they'll spend 15 minutes, um, instead of uh, delivering relevant teaching content, they'll just give a presentation to students about management's position in bargaining and why um, the NTU believes that these claims that we're asking for are really important for staff to achieve. But that same uh, type of action could be used by a professional staff member, say if you're in a meeting, like a local area meeting, and someone asks you a question you know, what do you think about this project that we're working on? Your response could be a five-minute answer, completely irrelevant to that question, only in support of the union's bargaining claim. So the sort of questions that we generally use have been framed in that way to try to have the sort of broadest amount of scope so that everyone can participate. Cool, that sounds really interesting. Um, the other thing we kind of wanted to get an idea on, is there, are, are there any sort of limits to what types of industrial action can be taken? And are there any that in the past we haven't been able to do? The answer is a bit complicated in that first you, you need to meet that definition of what, of industrial action. If something doesn't meet that definition, then it's not industrial action. I, I think that the example of email footers um, is an interesting one that might not necessarily be obvious to most people. Um, but the other question is... Um, Another provision of the Fair Work Act, which allows for an employer to make an application to the Fair Work Commission stopping industrial action, so something that is uh, falls within that definition and would otherwise be legal if it, um, amongst other things, um, would create a risk to the health, safety and welfare um, of the population or a part of it. And I think members at Monash will be familiar with this because um, going back to 2013, where there was a marking ban in place and uh, Monash objected to that or or made the application for an order on the basis that um, a prolonged and indefinite marking ban would create a risk to the health, safety and welfare of the student population. And the full bench in that uh, case sided with the employer 
in a way that makes it really difficult for us to um, uh, engage in that type of industrial action. Um, not only, and the way that we've done it in the past is to have exemptions because you know I think every NTU member would be really reluctant to do any type of industrial action that's going to lead to harm on students. So the exemption process was found to not be sufficient because um, the university led evidence to say, well, a disengaged and, and failing student is, who's in a sort of vulnerable mental health space is unlikely to um, be checking their emails, understand the exemption process, um, and thereby, and therefore, be able to get an exemption. So that really sort of restricted our ability to take um, industrial action around marking bans. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's sort of an example, maybe, of a un- the university sort of trying to find a crack and then trying to sort of blow it wide open to to further their own ends. So I guess the next the next sort of hill to broach maybe is what steps need to be taken to be able to take industrial action. Can we just sort of jump into it and and start? And I guess, is there a sort of, has that process changed over time? So uh, the process by which you get to take protected industrial action, which I I think um, it's important to distinguish between um, unprotected and protected industrial action. Um, So the process for taking protected industrial action is a uh, long and quite technical process. Um, you have to make an application to the commission. You have to um, be able to show that you're genuinely trying to reach agreement, which means a, a number of things. Firstly, it means that you've outlined the major um, items that you're looking for for inclusion in the new agreement. But also there's a sort of uh, technical process where um, or, or concept where the Fair Work Commission has said that you won't be genuinely trying to reach agreement if you're pursuing claims that are either unlawful terms or non-permitted matters or things that aren't capable of being included in an enterprise agreement. So once you've met that test, then um, there's an opportunity for an employer to object to um, particular questions on the basis that they either couldn't be industrial action or they're framed in a way that um, they say an employee isn't that capable of understanding them. And that often leads to quite absurd results where an employer objects. We had one recently um, uh, in late last year where the university's lawyers were arguing that no one could possibly understand what it means to respond to a phone call. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, it it is an opportunity, I think, for some quite um, opportunistic and, and cynical objections designed only to slow down the union's ability to take industrial action. Then once you get that application made, the process is that there is a ballot of all of uh, eligible members. And in order for that ballot to get up, you need to get out at least 50% of the eligible members to vote. And then each item of industrial action that's on that order um, needs to also get more than 50% support. Uh, Once you've done that, then you're in the stage of being able to notify protected industrial action. So the university has the opportunity to uh, get ready or, or, you know, to prepare for for that action. Um, There are a lot of hoops to jump through to to get there, um, but that's the process. And so, sorry, just one 
quick follow-up question to that. With In terms of the notifying the university of the intention to take action, could we just notify them on the first day that we're going to do it? You have to, to give them three days' notice. So if you're going to say, if you want to go on strike on Friday, you have to send them a formal notice on the Monday to say that that's um, going to occur. So it sounds like the process of... Um, getting to the point of being able to do industrial action is pretty onerous on the union and it seems pretty limiting in what the union can do. And I was wondering, Campbell, if you could give us an idea about the history of industrial action and industrial action law in Australia. Has it always been this difficult for unions to take uh, industrial action? It's a really good question and it sort of shows how I think uh, the invention of the idea of protected industrial action has actually made industrial action a lot more difficult to take. And my understanding is that the concept was introduced in the Workplace Relations Act, which was the act um, prior to uh, the Fair Work Act, and uh, that sort of created this regime of protected action ballot orders. Prior to that, um, there was no concept of protected industrial action, but sort of uh, counterintuitively, you see that the, the Productivity Commission tracks days lost to industrial action. And when there was no right to take protected industrial action, the rates or, or days lost to industrial action were a lot higher than they are now, because it used to be if you're in the bargaining process or if you... Um, we're in some other dispute with your employer, a shop steward or delegate would come down and say, all right, you know, we've had enough of this, everybody out, you know, we're going on strike until the employer sees sense. These days, with all the hoops that we have to jump through, it's actually led to uh, fewer days um, of productivity being lost to industrial action. So um, that's sort of the, the situation that we're in now. Is the notion of protected industrial action unique to Australia or is that sort of internationally um, something that is in other countries as well? Uh, well, you're really putting me on the spot here, but my understanding is that the International Labour Organisation conventions say that there is a right to uh, take industrial action um, and that those rights should be enshrined in the laws of um, the countries that are signed up to those conventions. So. My understanding is that um, protected industrial action is a relatively common um, right, you know, in, in developed countries. But I think we have a particularly restrictive regime when it comes to actually taking industrial action. Cool. Sorry for putting you on the spot. No, no. Um, I, I guess, and the reason that that is, is because you know, our rights to take protected industrial action are sort of confined by, by the legal regime, but also the, the requirement that you can only take protected industrial action during a bargaining period. So, um, you know, there's no right to, to get a protected action ballot around a, a dispute with your employer or something like that. It, it can only be in support of claims um, in bargaining. I think that kind of leads us nicely into the, to the next bit is that if we have this notion of protected action that is sort of enshrined in law, that people undertaking that action would have an expectation of sort of legal protections from punishment for that. What could we reasonably expect the university's response to industrial action to be? Can the university punish people for taking part in industrial action? Can they sort of lose their job or have their pay docked? Uh, so that is um, a really good question. And there's sort of a few ways that the university can respond to our industrial action. Um, some of them are sort of within their discretion and some of them aren't. So 
Um, if you're taking industrial action in the form of a work stoppage, so if you're going out on strike, if you're refusing to perform any work at all, the university doesn't have a choice and they're not allowed to pay you for the time that you're um, doing that. So they have to dock your pay for the, the length of the strike and it's illegal for a union um, or an employee um, to ask for payment for that period. But the situation is a little bit different um, for the other types of um, industrial action. So they're referred to partial work bans, referred to as partial work bans. In that situation, the university uh, has three options. The first one is they can do nothing. They can say, fair enough, it's your right to engage in industrial action. Um, we'll sort of wear it and continue to pay you as normal. The second option is for them to say, well, we're going to make an assessment of um, how much time we think you're going to do, you would normally spend in any given day doing that particular activity. Um, so if we take the example of, of the, you know, a lecturer giving a presentation to students about the union's claims, they'd say, well, we think that would be about 15 minutes and we'll dock your pay by 15 minutes for every time you engage in that action. The third option that they have is um, to say, we're not going to accept any work from you while you're engaging in the industrial action and we're not going to pay you for that time until and you're not allowed to attend for work until you are ready to come and do all of your duties as normal um, but i guess in terms of punishment in terms you know if you think about allegations of misconduct or disciplinary proceedings or anything like that you're protected from any any repercussions in your employment. You can't be performance managed because you know um, you didn't get work done that was subject of a ban. You can't be um, you know done for misconduct for anything that you've done or for refusing to do duties that were the subject of, of industrial action. But I, I think uh, people should be aware that um, that doesn't necessarily apply to things that you do in the course of undertaking industrial action. So there's. A famous case from the High Court, um, I believe it was in 2013, um, and, and it's referred to as the Scabs case. And and uh, that was a case where uh, members of an employer were out on strike, and one of them had a, uh, and they were having a picket of the, of the employer, and one of the um, employees had a sign that said, um, I think it was, scabs no guts or something like that and he was brought up on charges of of misconduct for bre breaching the code of conduct and the high court in in a decision that really i think splits hairs says that he wasn't disciplined for uh engaging in industrial action he was disciplined for the conduct he engaged in while he was engaging industri in industrial action and that wasn't protected so um, there is that sort of um, issue of, of making a distinction between being disciplined for engaging in the industrial action and sort of conduct that you engage in while you're engaged in industrial action. Wow, that is one hell of a case. <laughs> um, the other question that we had was the who can actually take part in industrial action once the members of Monash Union vote for it? Are there any restrictions? So uh, the people who can engage in industrial action are those people on whose behalf we've made the application. Um, so the, the people who are described in the protected, protected action ballot order, and that would normally be members of the NTU who are employed by Monash University. So 
if you're not a member of the NTEU or if you're a member of another union, um, you're not entitled to engage in protected industrial action. So a good reminder to join up to the union if you haven't already. Always. <laughs> and so does that also include if you're a member of the NTEU but work at multiple universities and your NTEU affiliation is to that other university, to Melbourne University or La Trobe or something like that? The ballot wouldn't make a distinction between, you know, uh, where you're designated to be a member um, under our rules. So it might be the case that for the purposes of our rules, you're a member of the Melbourne branch, but if you're also employed by Monash University, uh, you're entitled to participate in in that industrial action. Oh, cool. That's good to know. And um, just another sort of question about the sort of nitty-gritty What if industrial action takes place on a day someone isn't actually working? So if you're a part-time staff member or casual staff member, can these people take part in industrial action as well? Well, I think just as a matter of definition, if you're not working, you're not engaged in industrial action because, you know, you you can't do a stoppage of work at a time that you're not working and you can't, um, you know, create that requisite restriction, limitation or delay in the performance of your work if you're not working. Um, and sort of the part of that uh, that SCABS case is to say that engaging in a picket um, isn't actually industrial action. It's the stoppage of work that's um, uh, your industrial action. So that being the case, if you're not working on a day that is a strike day and there's a picket, um, I'd encourage you to get along um, and participate because that's not necessarily you engaging in industrial action, but it is showing the support um, and, you know, uh, sending the message to management that we're serious about the claims that we're making. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd encourage that as well. You know, pickets are always really fun. So if you do have the day off, it's a great, great day to come chat with your colleagues and like have a bit of fun while also helping uh, the union with bargaining. Couldn't agree more. We've sort of got a good sense of, of the process of taking industrial action and who can take part in it. What are the benefits of industrial action for members? Why is industrial action such a powerful tool for unions and union members? Well, as as I said before, it really is um, the best way to send a message to management that the membership is behind um, the bargaining team and sort of showing that um, their operations and their business is going to be significantly disrupted um, until they come to the table on the claims that we're um, demanding for inclusion in a new agreement. And, and secondly to that, um, I'd agree with you, Kate, it's a good way to sort of show your solidarity, get amongst it and, and show your support for the union and make sure that you're fighting for better terms and conditions for you and your colleagues. Great. Thanks very much. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I, I guess I'd just say to anyone who's unsure about or opposed to taking industrial action, I'd say the the purpose of a protected action ballot is not to, you know, sign in blood your guarantee that you're going to engage in it. It's only to give the members of the branch the opportunity to take that industrial action. So even if you don't plan on taking it yourself, um, which I would encourage everyone to do it, but even if you don't plan on taking it yourself, it's really important that you vote yes um, on all of the questions so your colleagues can take that action on your behalf. That's what I'd say in relation to the ballot. But then if you're opposed to doing it, I'd really urge you to reconsider because, it, you know, it shouldn't just be the sort of members of the branch committee or the members of the bargaining team that are sort of putting themselves out there. There really is safety of numbers and there's a really powerful message in industrial action that uh, sort of shows how 
much solidarity there is amongst the membership. So uh, I'd encourage everyone to get involved. Awesome. Thanks, Campbell. And thank you for, for coming and letting us pick your brain about all things industrial action. I think it's really useful to be able to explain to members and, and particularly people whose sort of daily lives don't necessarily intersect with the mechanics of industrial action and, and unionism and that kind of thing, what we have coming up and, and why it's important. Um, so thank you for for that. Very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I've been um, listening to the pod and very much enjoying it, particularly um, Adam's updates about the VC's pay at the start of every episode. So, um, pleasure to be involved. Thanks so much, Campbell. Um, just also like to say that next week we'll be talking uh, more specifically about parbos and how they work and um, hopefully talking to someone who has been through the process of a parbo before to give everybody a bit more of an idea. And just to also uh, plug again, we've got that all members meeting on February the 7th, where we'll be uh, voting on what actions go into the PARBO and all that kind of stuff as well. And as always, if you've got any questions, please shoot us an email at myunionroadandeba at gmail.com. Thanks very much, everyone, and we'll see you all in two weeks. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kate, Danny, Adam, Bernard, and Pod Daddy Sofio for all the work they've put into this. And we'll catch you next time.